one of the more difficult things that we deal with as, as believers is the balance between reason and faith. We believe that reason is a part of how God has made us. We believe that it is uh, an important component of how we function, how we operate, how we live our lives. We would hope that we would apply logic and reason to our decision-making processes. But on the other hand, we're also called what? We're, we're called to live by faith. We're called to sometimes look at what's reasonable and say, that's not the direction I'm going. St. Augustine put it this way. He says, God does not expect us to submit our faith to him without reason, but the very limits of our reason make faith a necessity. We can only see so much. We can only understand so much. We can only perceive of so much that's going on around us in our life and in our experiences. Sometimes God calls us to, to step out beyond what seems reasonable, what seems logical. Charles Kettering, when he was a research head at General Motors, uh, whenever he, he said whenever he had a problem that um, they really needed to address, really needed to deal with, he would place a table outside the meeting room, and he would leave a, a sign on the table that said simply, leave your slide rules here. And he said the reason he would do that is because inevitably, as he started talking about solutions and answers and ways to go to, to deal with the problems that they were facing, somebody, one of his engineers, would pull out their slide rule and say, boss, we can't do that. And he didn't want anybody thinking that way. He didn't want anybody thinking through the, the situation or the problem with a mindset of that can't be done. I think sometimes God calls on us to metaphorically leave our slide rules on the table outside. But how do we find that balance? How do we, how do we navigate that task and that journey? Turn with me, if you will, to, to 1 Samuel chapter 27. We are getting ready to, to wrap up our journey through Samuel next week. We'll be looking at chapters 27, 29, and 30 uh, this morning. And, and where we find David at this point is, is, again, he's still on the run from Saul. He's still dealing with the difficulties, the hardships, the circumstances that, that uh, encompass him because of that uh, situation. And we find David trying to logically plot his, his course forward, how to deal with the circumstance. But at the same time, he's also trying to, to find that balance with faith. And, and this is one of those passages, this is one of those texts that, that really scholars struggle with, biblical scholars struggle with, that those who, who believe in the, the efficacy, the truth of Scripture and so forth, they're not really sure how to handle David in this particular situation. So you'll find some scholars out there, some interpreters out there, who are very harsh on David. They'll say, man, David made mistake after mistake after mistake in this particular set of chapters. And you'll find others who say, no, David did what he did in a, in a very difficult situation, that he really didn't have a lot of choices, and, and so he pursued what he did through the elements of reason and logic, but also through faith knowing who God was, trying to be faithful to who God had called him to be as a leader of Israel. And so 
this morning, as I look at the passage, as we break down the passage, I kind of find myself leaning more toward that latter group. I don't think David's perfect in this scenario, but I, and I do think we see some, some precursors to later problems in his life and in his ministry and so forth, some, some things that really the, the groundwork is laid for those later decisions, and we'll talk about those when we get there. But I think overall, David is really just trying to deal with a very, very difficult situation. Remember, we're talking, he's been on the run now for over a decade. Over 10 years, he's been out there in the wilderness just trying to survive Saul's attacks. And twice, he's had Saul right where he wanted him, right where, where he could take care of him. And, and, and he, he did what was right and said, I'm not going to touch the Lord's anointing. But Saul, being Saul, he hasn't been consistent. He'll, he'll, he'll back off, he'll praise David, and then he'll attack once again. And that's just wearying to the soul. Because you don't know what to expect. You don't know where to turn. You don't know what you're going to receive from the people around you next. And so we find David in a, a very difficult situation, trying to navigate through it. And some of you here today, you're in that very setting. You're in that very circumstance. You're in a very difficult situation. There's really a, a no-win reality as it, as it appears to you at this moment. If you go this way, there's consequences and difficulties. If you go this way, there's consequences and difficulties. And, and you're really just trying to navigate your way through life's choices. Hopefully, as we look at this passage today, as we, we look at how the biblical writer relays these truths, we can see some things that we can apply to our lives as well the decision-making process, in following God's will. So let's look here first at the, the first four verses of chapter 27. It says, David said to himself, one of these days I'll be swept away by Saul. There's nothing better for me than to escape him immediately to the land of the Philistines. That Saul will give up searching for me everywhere in Israel, and I'll escape from him. So David set out with his 600 men and went over to Achish, son of Maok, the king of Gath. And David and his men stayed with Achish and Gath. Each man had his family with him, and David had his two wives, Ahinoam of Jezreel and Abigail of Carmel, Nabal's widow. When it was reported to Saul that David had fled to Gath, he no longer searched for him. So you know it's a struggle when the, when the narrator tells you immediately he's talking to himself. He's debating with himself. You ever find yourself in that kind of situation, that kind of mindset? You're like, well, if I do this, or well, if I do this, you know, and you're really looking for a, uh, an intelligent answer, but if you're like me, you're talking to yourself, so that's really hard to find. And sometimes it's just a struggle. And that's where David is. He, he's been on the run for so long, and he says, I just don't know what to do anymore. Everywhere I go, Saul's right on my heels. And he concludes, you know what? There's one place that Saul wouldn't be on my heels. That's in Philistia, living among the Philistines. There are ancient enemies. We've fought them several times. I've killed many of their people. Saul certainly won't chase me down there, so let's go down there. And here we see the, the, the first truth about finding God's will is, is that walking in the tension between, God, between God's sovereignty 
and our choices is, is the first part of any decision-making process as a believer. We acknowledge as Christians that God is sovereign. He's in control. He moves, he shapes, he directs lives and the decisions that they, uh, that they render. This is who God is. To, to, to deny that, to reject that, is to reject one of the, the core principles of what it means to be a believer. God is in control. That's the very definition of what it means to be God. But we also recognize what? That he has given us free will. Now, how does that work out? How, how is God completely in control? How is God completely sovereign? And, and we truly have free will. That's been a, a debate, a struggle for philosophers and, and, and theologians and, and just everyday people for centuries. And I'll tell you right now, here's the answer for me. I don't know. I don't know how it works out. Just as I don't know how God is three persons and yet one. And I don't know how Jesus is fully God and fully man. There are things about how God works and God's op God operates that are beyond my understanding. And I should really expect that. Why? Because he's God and I'm not. So there's going to be things that he does. There's going to be things of how he operates. There's going to be things of how he has shaped reality that are simply beyond my comprehension. When I talk to my, my eldest child, my daughter, she's working on her master's in mathematics, statistics, and so forth. And she'll start saying things, and it's Charlie Brown's teacher. Wah, wah, wah. You know, I, I, have, I don't understand a word she's saying. I have a PhD. I, I'm a, I, I, I am an accomplished scholar in many ways. But when she starts talking math, it's done. Why? Because I'm not a mathematician. That's not my field. That's not my expertise. That's not where I've grown. And it's not really how my mind works in many ways. She's a mathematician. I'm not. So she's going to say a lot of things that she understands that she can explain and she can do that I don't understand and can't explain. You move that into the realm of the divine, and it's even a greater disparity. There are things that God knows and God does and God can say that I simply cannot understand. I simply accept them because that's how he has presented himself. He has revealed himself in nature, as we read from Romans 1 earlier, and in his word. He has revealed himself to, to, to express and to, to uh, communicate certain truths. He said, this is who I am. I know all things. I'm omnipresent. I'm, all, I'm everywhere. And I am in control. And yet, I've also given you choice, free will. So David, in this environment, in this situation, finds himself in this place. He knows that God is sovereign. He knows that, that God is over all the earth, not just Israel. 
If you read on into chapter 29 and 30, which we're not going to read today, we're going to summarize, but if you read on into that, you're going to see this king of Gath, Achish, actually using the divine name Yahweh as he speaks to David. The God of Israel is identified and referred to by this king of the Philistines. Not to say that he was a believer, but it's to say that, that what the biblical writer is communicating is that God is bigger than just Israel. And David understood that. And so you see this balance here. He's, he's saying, you know, I have this choice of where to live. And I trust God that God's in control. And though his culture and his time would have said to leave Israel is to leave God's sovereign control, David sees beyond that truth. God's even going to be down there. God's going to be in that place. And the narrator is, is clear as the passage unfolds that, that David's not committing treason here. He's very careful about the decisions he does make. We're going to see that play out. He's very careful not to, um, to, to attack Israel in these circumstances. Be faithful to his anointing as Israel's leader. But he's trying to find a solution that seems unfindable, but he can't find it. And true to the situation, the decision, at least on the surface, seems like a good one. Verse 4 says what? Saul stopped pursuing. David was right. His logic, his reason, his rationality of how life worked and how Saul would operate was on target here. The passage goes on. You see that the struggle, having made this first choice, the, the, the struggle continues and, and kind of expands to some degree. Beginning in verse 5. Now David said to Achish, If I have found favor with you, let me be given a place in one of your outlying towns so I can live there. Why should your servant live in the royal city with you? That day Achish gave Ziklag to him. And, and it still belongs to the kings of Judah to this day. The length of time that David stayed in the Philistine territory amounted to a year and four months. You see David using logic. You see David using diplomacy when he refers to himself as Achish's servant. But you also see him using logic in terms of his commitment to God. He says what? He, he's basically saying... Don't pin me in here in this capital city. Because David knew if he's in the royal city there with Achish, there were going to be all sorts of expectations concerning him, concerning Philistine gods, concerning responsibilities to the Philistine army. He knew that if he stayed in that environment where he's going to be closely watched, where he's going to be guarded, where he's going to be um, uh, observed really every step that he takes, that he really wouldn't have the freedom to serve the God as he wanted. So he's, he's reasoning. He's, he's, he's playing the game in many respects here. Now one of the interesting things about 
the gift here that Achish gives to David is back in Joshua chapter 15, verse 31. Ziklag was one of the cities promised to Israel. It was one of the cities that God, when he said, when you go into the promised land here, Joshua, when you take the land, these are the cities that are, that are yours. And Israel had failed to capture it. Israel had failed to take it. They had been stopped by the Philistines. Here we are a couple hundred years later. David is given Ziklag by the Philistines. Just handed it to him. It's yours. It's your city to dwell there. And you see here that that this, this, this tension here is between God's promises and our desires. David's desires were, were to, to survive. David's desires were to, to continue to serve God as best he could, to, to not be nailed down, to not be frozen by the, the, the religion or the politics of the Philistines. And so he, he asked for the city. And the promise that God had made to Joshua is now fulfilled. Sometimes there are things that, that happen in our life. There, there are things that are beyond our understanding that, that are bigger than we hope for. And they're bigger than we hope for simply because they're a part of what God has promised His people. We're just looking at our circumstances. We're just looking at our situation. We're just looking at, at what we're facing. But God sees something bigger. And He grants that to us. He gives that to us. He he blesses us beyond our imagination. Have you ever been in that moment where, where you, were, you were in a circumstance and, and you made a decision using the best information that was available to you and it turned out better than you even imagined it could have? That's God. That's God blessing you beyond your ability to, to see, understand. So part of our journey in terms of making these decisions is, is what has God planted in our heart as a desire? And we've talked about this before, that, that in discerning God's will, a lot of times it, it, it's how God moves in you. It is your desire. You know, I think sometimes when, when it comes time to make a decision, we, 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 we start thinking, but you know what, that's, that's what I want. Can what I want really what, be what God has desired for me as well? Because we've been taught, appropriately so, let me, let me be clear about that, we've been taught that our will, our mind, and so forth is corrupted by sin. And it is. There's no question about it. We are selfish individuals corrupted by sin. And so because of that, and knowing that, and because the Holy Spirit's working in our life and so forth, sometimes whenever we start to make a decision, we, we automatically assume that that has to be the wrong decision because we're making it. And we want to be sensitive to that. We want to be sensitive to how God might be saying, you know what? 
your desires are not godly here. Your desires are not appropriate. We want to be sensitive to God's word and God's way and God's direction as he's clearly outlined in Scripture. But at the same time, we also want to be sensitive to the fact that when we come to Christ, we are new creatures. And that changes a lot of how we think and how we operate and how we function. It doesn't perfect us at this point. That's coming one day, but right now it's not perfected. But it does change us. It gives us a connection to God and, and His desire and His will for us that didn't exist before. It gives us some clarity there. And so as I've said before, one of the first things you need to ask yourself when you're making a decision, and it seems maybe too good to be true, or maybe it's just like you desire, the first thing you need to ask yourself is, am I being consistent with what God has already revealed to me in His Word, things that He said in His Word? Am I being obedient? Is my life characterized by worship? Is my life characterized by Bible study? Is my life characterized by prayer? Am I making disciples? Am I sharing my faith? Am I living in a way that reflects God's will for everybody? Am I being consistent in, I hate to call it little things, but in those, those, those everyday things? Let's put it that way. Am I being consistent in those things he's already said in his word to do? Because if you are, then that means what? That means you're walking in a way that is already mindful of his will. It's already mindful of his desires, things that he's already said. And if you're doing that, then those things that are, are less clear, not necessarily stated in Scripture overtly, you're going to be more in tune with what he desires there as well. Think of it in terms of, of any relationship you're in. Any relationship you're in. There are certain things, your friends, your loved ones, your significant others, so forth, they've told you over time, I don't like that. Don't do that. And if you're in that relationship and you're doing those things they don't like, then what? It's kind of hard to read the other things they might want to do or to understand those things because you're not in tune with them. But if you're doing those things, then, then what? It becomes easier to read them. It becomes easier to understand them. And so our desires can be a, a, a way that God reveals to us His will for our lives. If our lives are grounded in His worst. If we're being obedient in those other things, not perfectly, again, that's not possible, but if we are following along in those things, he will make the other things clear to us as well, I believe. Continues on in verse 8. David and his men went up and raided the Geshurites, the Gerzites, the Amalekites. From ancient times, they had been the inhabitants of the region through Shur, as far as the land of Egypt. Whenever David attacked the land, he did not leave a single person alive, either man or woman. But he took flocks, herds, donkeys, camels, and clothing. Then he came back to Achish, who inquired, Where did you raid today? And David replied, The south country of Judah, the south country of Jeremelites, or the south country of the Kenites. 
David did not let a man or woman live to be brought to gas, for he said, or they will inform on us and say, this is what David did. This was David's custom during the whole time he stayed in the Philistine territory. So Achish trusted David, thinking, since he has made himself repulsive to his people Israel, he will be my servant forever. Now this is one of those places where it gets a little muddy in terms of David's actions. You see, you see the, the, the tension that he's walking in here between God's commands and, and his needs. And, and we need to find that tension. We need, to, we need to say, okay, this is what God has said. I'm going to follow what God has said, but I also have these needs. And, and how do I find that balance? David's need was what? To preserve his people. To preserve Israel. And his raids into these uh, opposing uh, enemies in these enemy camps and so forth serve to do that. He was successful in that. David carried out the, the, the commands of, that God had given Joshua against Israel's enemies while also ingratiating himself to the Philistines. But he does it with deceit, half truths. Let's put it that way. See, he's attacking people, but he tells Achish he's attacking lands. See the distinction there? He's not completely dishonest to Achish. He says, I attacked here in South Judah. I attacked here in the Jeremalites and the south country of the Kenites. I attacked those places. And using those terms, the Kenites, Judah, and so forth, he makes it sound to Achish like he's attacking Israelites. That's what he makes it sound like. But he's really only attacking the enemies of Israel. And so he's trying to find that balance. Now this is one of those things that, that's, that his reasoning and his mindset is going to, to take hold and, and, and it's, it's laying a foundation for, for later actions that are not God. His reasoning for how he's doing this and, and, and the advantage that he's building off of this is exactly the reason he applies when it comes to Bathsheba later on. It's the exact same mindset. It's the exact same steps. Well, if this happens, then this will cost me. And if this happens, this will cost me. And I need to do this and so forth. So it's the same, it's the same steps. It's the same observations. The difference is what? With Bathsheba... He wasn't grounded in God's commands. He was just grounded in his needs. Here, he's at least keeping in mind and, and functioning in some ways under God's commands, at least some of God's commands. And that's the big difference between the two events. And that's important for us to keep in mind too. Sometimes, our needs require application of logic, reason, even rationalization. But the moment we step away from, step out of, God's clearly expressed commands of what we're supposed to do, then we're walking down the path away from where God would have us be. People rationalizing that or a relationship, or something like, well, I have to do this 
for this relationship to work. I'm here to tell you that if you're doing something for, quote, the relationship to work, and it's outside the bounds of God's commands, ultimately that relationship will not work. God's commands are not just there for God to say, let me impose myself on you. God's commands are there to express what's best for us ultimately. That's what he means to communicate. That's what he's trying to say. If you live by my commands, and you'll do what? You'll do what's best for who you are as well. And so we need to find that balance. As chapter 29 begins, we'll come back to chapter 28 next week. But as chapter 29 begins, you find some of the consequences of David's decisions. Because now the Philistines are getting ready to go to war against Israel. And David finds himself in, the, in, the, in that hard place. What do I do now? He's been with Achish for, again, over a year. Achish has trusted him. And so when it comes time to fight the Israelites, Achish says, come be a part of my band. Come be a part of my army. Come join me in this. But the passage tells us that as they're marching out, the Philistine commanders, the military leaders, see David and his men and they say, nope. He can't come with us. And you need to understand something of, of the Philistine structure here governmentally to kind of understand what's going on here. Achish was king of the one city. The Philistine structure was basically city-states. And you had the five primary cities, and those five cities held a lot of sway, but they were just one component of it. Think of it, the, probably the closest we can come to in our, in our system here would be like governors of states. Okay, The governor has a certain amount of sway over his state, things that he can do and so forth. But when it comes to national issues, what? There's a higher authority. And in Philistia, the higher authority were the military commanders because they led all the armies of Philistia. So Achish didn't have authority over the Philistine commanders. So when the Philistine commanders say, no, he can't come, Achish has to listen and say, David, sorry, you can't come. Now, we would argue, I, I would argue, that this is God's sovereignty at work here. God saw where David was. God saw the circumstance that David was in, who, where he was now going to have to fight his own people, and God said, I'm stepping in. And so he put it, I believe, in the Philistine leaders' hearts to not let David go on this expedition, on this issue. And I think we see here this, 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 this tension between God's deliverance and, and our dilemmas. Sometimes our dilemmas, sometimes our choices lead us to a place to what? To where we're kind of painted into a corner. Or maybe we've already messed up. And it's important for us to remember that God is still in the business of delivering His people. Not to be presumptuous, not to say, I'm going to do this because I know God's got my back and He's going to pull me out of this last moment. But to realize that as we live life, even as we make mistakes, 
God hasn't abandoned us. And God can still see us through that. The Philistines kicked David out, and I believe that's a, a God thing. God often moves in impossible situations to deliver his people. But again, we don't want to be presumptuous and just assume God's going to do it. There's a balance to be found between our being presumptuous and our trusting God in the midst of a very difficult situation. Oswald Chambers put it this way, Faith for my deliverance is not faith in God. Faith means whether I am visibly delivered or not, I will stick to my belief that God is love and God is in control. There are some things only learned in a fiery furnace. And he's referring, what, to, to, the, to the three friends of Daniel, Hananiah, Azariah, and Mishael. You remember their conversation with the king. They say, we're not going to bow. They say what? We believe God is capable of delivering us, but even if he doesn't, we're not going to bow. They were grounded in the truth of God's deliverance, but also realizing that our choices sometimes have consequences. And whatever those consequences may be, and whatever life leads me through, and whatever my choices lead me through, I still believe God can deliver God is there, and I'm going to trust God no matter how it plays out. Then in chapter 30, you have David no longer involved in uh, the struggle with the Philistines. He now branches out and he attacks the Amalekites. And in this struggle and so forth, David leaves the city of Ziklag unguarded. And the text says the text says that the Amalekites came in and they captured the city. They took the spoil and they captured the women and the children, including David's wives. And it tells us that when they come back from this attack and, and all these other things, that when they come back and they see how the, the city's been uh, sacked, the people have been carried away, that his troops attacked David. Verse 6, David was in an extremely difficult position because the troops talked about stoning him, for they were all very bitter over the loss of their sons and daughters. But David found strength in Yahweh his God. David made a, a poor decision, and, and it led to a loss here. But he found himself, what? Walking in that tension between God's provision and his responsibility. How does he respond to this situation? He goes out and he deals with the Amalekites. But as he goes, verse 11 through 15, throw this little story in there about how he rescued and ministered and, and, and served an Egyptian who was about to starve to death. 
He's in the middle of a battle and he finds this one man and he takes care of him and nurses him back to health. We see him intervening in verse 24 in a dispute among his people and establishing a principle of equality, establishing a principle of, of let's all walk together and, and serve according to God's purposes. We see him in verse 6 providing for the cities of Judah and their loss. David took responsibility for his poor choice. But as verse 6 says, he did so what in the strength of Yahweh. As we sang earlier, yet not, yet not I, but Christ in me. As we live our lives, as we deal with our mistakes, as we, as we sometimes make the wrong choice, we trust in God's provision that God is there, but we also take responsibility for what we've done and what we've been called to. You see, in pursuing God's will, we have a role. We have a responsibility. Yes, we trust God to be sovereign. We trust God in His promises. We trust God's commands. We trust God's deliverance. We trust God's provision. But we, we what? We also take responsibility to do it right. To be consistent with what God has called us to. To, to be true to what God has said. One of my favorite classes when I was in junior high, I don't even know if they teach this anymore. But one of my favorite classes was woodshop. And in woodshop, they taught us how to use all the various tools, table saw, lathes, all those other things. And there was one tool in particular they tried to teach us how to, how to, uh, to use, but I really wasn't interested too much because it was boring. It's called the carpenter square. This is a little thing. Give me the motors. Give me the engines. Give me the blades. That's what I was interested in. And so during that particular lesson on the carpenter square and how to use it and all those other things, I really didn't pay a lot of attention. And I thought to myself, you know what? I'm just going to eyeball it. And sure enough, we made this little box. That was our assignment for the, for the it was to make a bread box. And uh, I eyeballed it. You can imagine what my box looked like. Calling it a box was probably generous. Size didn't match up. The angles weren't right. All those other things. Why? Because I was interested in the big show and I ignored your most important tool, the, the thing that got things squared, the things that got things the way they were going to line up together. I think so often in Christianity... As we seek to, quote, follow God's will, we're looking for the big show. We're looking for the big moment. We're looking for the big decisions. And we've forgotten the carpenter square he gave us. Clear teachings he's instructed us with. It's not fancy. It's not glamorous or anything like that. But it is what's going to make things line up. 
and we need to take responsibility to dig into it. To follow it. To apply it to our lives. I don't know what God's will is for every one of you and every decision you're facing today. But I do know God's will for every one of us is that we obey His commandments. That we love one another. And that we spread His truth to the people that He's bringing into our lives. Are we going to be beating the little things? Trusting He is sovereign in the big things and the little ones. He'll see us through as we listen to Him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank You for this day. Thank You for each person here. I thank You for the fact that You don't leave us to our own devices. You don't leave us to eyeballing life. You have given us clear instruction in Your Word, God. Yes, Lord, I understand. And I struggle with decisions now and again. But God, I'm so thankful that you are sovereign, you are in control. And I can walk in that tension between my desires and your leadership. Father, but submit and be obedient where you've spoken clearly. God, I pray that you would help us today as, as we come to this time of decision just to be responsive to what you're saying to us, to, to our hearts, to our minds. Lord, help us to be repentant if we're not being obedient. Help us to be submissive if we're trying to do everything on our own. God, I pray that if there's anyone here today who's never given their life to you, they don't have that compass instruction from the Holy Spirit dwelling within them to guide them. God, I pray that you would draw them and that they would respond in faith. Use this time for your purposes, God. Direct and lead and call us as you need. And help us to be obedient to that. In Christ's name.